0: You were there, they were selling a $5,000 package. It comes with a bunch of binders, maybe it was DVDs or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And, and, but people buy it and it, Robert's not involved. So it's totally sellable. So like in those cases, they're leveraging their name and their brand, even though they are the face, um, they, they could sell that. Some of these guys just want the licensing and, and they're fine with it. The, the challenge with anything that has you as the face or you as the brand, is Have you ever thought about what your business is
1: worth? or maybe you've considered buying a business but don't know where to start. Our guest today is RE Scheinbein and to put it simply, he's a finance genius. He's an expert in business valuation, value improvement, and deal structuring, and can teach you a thing or two about a thing or two. Today, JR gets the scoop on what to do with all that juicy internet money he's making and the pros and cons of investing in businesses versus investing in your skills. Get your notepads out. Welcome to the Instant Leverage Podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, so we're here with REA. A uh, good friend of mine for a while now, and we've known each other now since 2016, 17, early yeah, 17. So, yeah, sounds about right. So, uh, tell everybody a little bit about uh, what you do, because um, you're by far one of the smartest people I know. And half the time, you talk, I don't even know what I don't even know what you're <laughs> saying because it's it's out of my uh, above my pay grade.
0: I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so uh, like, like many entrepreneurs or entrepreneurial people, um, I can't say that I've always just done one thing. But you know my my core focus is um, I have a degree in finance and then basically took that standard let's go to the investment banking Wall Street route and at this point in my you know career what I do is uh, I am a consultant and in a large consulting firm where I'm hired primarily by private equity firms and hedge funds and alternative asset managers to value their businesses. So basically they kind of, you know, give us the overview of the investment or the the business they're looking at or they own already. They give us the financials and they tell us, um, this is what we're thinking, this is what we want. Uh, What do you think this business is worth? And then ultimately after they get into the deal, they come back to us continuously to help us um, assess the situation. And then really when, when we add a lot more value is also when we actually tell them how they can make it more valuable. So when we're valuing a business, one of the things to, you know, in the online space, everything is like revenue, maybe expenses, and then like, what's the profit. But when you're looking at some of, let's call it, you know, older school businesses and less online focus, there are a lot of things and tweaks that you can do to make the business worth more or less. Some people totally know them. Some people don't, but the buyers are always looking for these different things. So that's another thing we, we kind of help them with. <laughs> That's my primary focus. I mean, I also happen to have, like I said, as as an entrepreneur, have multiple other businesses I'm either involved in or um, continue to either advise or have been involved in. But that's my day to day kind of focus.
1: So on a, on a daily basis, um, I just like every, asking every successful person this. Um, how's your time split up between your uh, different ventures?
0: Sure. No, that that's a great question. I th- I think that's probably one of the questions that people always ask me, like, how do I have enough time in the day for? Um, and that kind of fits really well with with your you know your brand of uh, of instant leverage. Um, you know, so my day, you know, like a lot of people, they have morning routines. Mine's not a thousand percent consistent, but like it's pretty consistent morning routine. Um, but I would say the the bulk of the day, if I think about it, is you know fifty percent of the day is dealing with and, and servicing the clients that I have or kind of adding value to them or getting more clients in that, that core consulting business. Um, I split up my day also that like, I ensure that I have time to read. So whether it's not just like newspaper news, but like I, I tend to uh, you know, objectively try and get about 10 pages of, uh, of reading done. Um, it never was set probably until about four or five years ago that it was that number. Um, I was always like, Hey, let me get some reading in, but now I'm like pretty set that I want to get, um, a solid 10 pages. And sometimes I'll get, you know, way more depends on, on what I'm reading. Um, but I find that it just continuously expanding the idea kind of mindset. Um, I happen to use boxer for certain things. So a lot of times I will carve out one hour in kind of chunks and, you know, use that for boxer time. And that's really where I'm starting to split into other businesses. So to, you know, to the point of leverage, right, almost every other business I'm involved in, I have some sort of team or partner or something. And that communication kind of tends to play, take place during, you know, let's call it throughout the day, Unboxer. Um, and I tend to work a lot, let's call it after normal business hours. Um, I happen to stay up late a lot of times, Um, always have. It's just been like a thing, always been like a night owl type of thing. And, you know, with people with like aura rings or different things, like studying their sleep, I find like a lot of people will tell you like, hey, they need to have X number of hours or they don't function. I actually find like six hours is about my sweet spot. Five hours, I'm still almost in the sweet spot. But if I'm sleeping like eight hours, I actually don't find that the next day is as optimal as um as when I'm in the six and so like I just get a lot done late at night and you know obviously have have family so I make sure to spend time with them Corona's kind of helped with that um but yeah that's that's kind of how I carve it up i would say the, the majority of the day is is focused on the primary stuff but then everything else gets split up um i'm finding that now as as my time you know splinters a little bit more um i'm trying to dedicate days to different things. So whether it's Wednesday is like re- recording if I'm doing content or something like that. But for the most part, like I almost touch every business at least two or three times throughout the week, just to kind of check in with people and kind of get an update or, or have communication.
1: So do you, do you have uh, notifications on, on your phone? So I guess it depends how
0: you define notifications on, on your phone, right? So <laughs> they, none of my notifications make any sounds. Um, the only, actually the only notification that makes sounds is, um, is texting and ringing. So like if someone's actually calling me or texting Mm -hmm. me, um, there will be a notification on that. Um, I am not, um, I'm pretty disciplined about like, Hey, Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Like, like not checking every second, uh, what's going on. So even if I see a notification, um, a lot of times I'll kind of ignore it, especially if I'm in, if I'm in like the work zone of different things and, and like, sometimes a detriment in the sense like my, my daughter, my teenage daughter gave me a hard time the other week. She's like, did you not see the text I sent you? And I'm like, I I saw a flash on the screen, but like, you know, it didn't seem overly urgent. So I figured I'd get back to her, you know, and, and not to like play her down over anything else, but um, for the most part, like, unless there's like an emergency, which she would have probably wrote if, if she was, she was driving somewhere and just didn't know something. Um, I, I'm not really like all over it. But I tend to like give myself that let's call it an hour in the middle of the day or something, and then I'll just go through a lot of the notifications. Um, so sometimes people are like, "Oh, you respond to the notification so fast!" I'm like, "You happen to catch me in that window that I, like that I'm that I'm on." Um, and in the evenings, a lot of times that's when I'm doing a, like a lot of direct messaging. So when when people are messaging me on different apps or whatever it is, they'll probably get me a whole lot better
1: than if they message me in the middle of the day. Okay, cool. Yeah, because. I, um, I, anytime I have notifications on, even if it flashes and I look at it now, it's like an itch that you have to scratch. Mm-hmm. So I have like notifications completely off to where like nothing flashes on my phone ever. Um, except for, um, I have white listed contacts that if they call, then my phone will actually ring, but the rest of the time my phone's on do not disturb. Um, which has screwed me over a couple of times. Like when the Uber eats driver can't find me (laughs) like that. Um, one time actually I did miss a flight because they uh, delayed the flight and then I had no notifications on. So I saw, I ended up seeing it got delayed. So then I was like, Oh cool. Let me go get some food. And then they moved it back to a closer time to the departure time. And then I just completely missed the flight because I didn't, I didn't come back until. Well, yeah. So, um, but the way that I think about it is like, okay, that kind of sucked. Like I, I lost some time doing that. I lost some time with the Uber Eats driver, but like net net, I've gained so much time by not having notifications on all the time. Um, And that's why I was asking if you have your notifications on, because I wanted to see if you could see a notification and then ignore it. Or if you just kind of respond to the notifications as they come up. Um, yeah so
0: aware. I they don't make noises, so the screen flashes. I generally ignore them. Um, I do depending on so obviously every app has its own like color or whatever you know based on on how the the app designer mm-hmm. had it. So so the only thing that like I generally pay emergency attention to is the green text. Uh, For the, you know, for the iPhone, the messaging, because I know that, like, if someone has my phone number and they're they're texting me, the probability is that it's more important. And it's not, you know, I know I'm not getting tagged on a Facebook post, or I'm not getting even a Voxer message or whatever it is. Um, And that's why like people... (laughs) A lot of people use WhatsApp, like a lot of people I deal with, and mm-hmm. like I can't, I actually don't really like the app at all because like I'm in tons of groups, kind of like Facebook, and yeah. there's notifications going all day. That the one thing about WhatsApp is you can actually sh- mute just each group's mm-hmm. notifications. Um, so I turn the notification like I don't even see those flashing. So um, those are totally off. Everything else is basically silent, but everything else. Um, that one is totally, totally off and people are always like, Hey, did you not see this? And I'm like, I really can't stand the WhatsApp app. Mm -hmm. Um, like it has its benefits, but like, I, I generally don't like it. And so I know that if, if, if a green is popping up, it's a message and it's probably more personal.
1: Gotcha. So, um, I also wanted to talk about like selling businesses because it's not, that's not something that, uh, digital marketers really think about Mm -hmm. at least when they're building the business right um and i know i know a few people that have like sold their agency or very few that have sold a i don't know actually i can't think of anybody who sold like a coaching business um so what are some ways that you could as you're growing an agency or a coaching business make it worth more on the back end Mm -hmm. um and more just acquirable totally um, so it's
0: funny because like this this is a conversation that like I've had a lot of, of times over the years with people specifically in in the digital marketing space or um, you know people who are selling information in that in that sense um, you know there's the first thing is is like even if, if you're five years into your business or, or one year into your business or you're just starting one of the big things is that like you you kind of want to go in with that idea at this from day one, but wherever you are, if you're today, like, Oh, you know, that's like an interesting idea to sell. You want to set the business up in a way that actually is sellable. So I think one of the things that like, you know, just housekeeping things is people don't have the entities set up, right? Like they don't have the LLC. They don't have a clean bank account. They don't have like literally what I would call like the fundamentals of like day one because it's kind of like it started out maybe as a hobby it started out I just needed to make money, I was paying my bills, whatever it is. Um, so mm-hmm. after you kind of set that up, the mindset becomes okay, I need to have the end in mind in the beginning, so when I'm starting, what is it that i I basically have productized, and what is my 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 definitive core offering? so you know you and I were talking before, and like you have a dialed in core offer right now that that you're offering but a lot of times you see people who have like all different things. And and the first thing I tell people is, I, I end up a lot of time directing people to a very good book called Built to Sell. And the reason the book is good is it's not, first of all, you can probably read it in one hour, maybe two hours, it's a quick read. It's you know 100, 200 pages or whatever it is, but it's a story. The guy wrote the book in a story fashion. And so you can kind of start to see yourself in the story. But the point of the book really is, is that this, this guy had like a, um, a design marketing agency that he was thinking about maybe selling. And the questions like he had him ask were like, well, why do you want to sell it? What's the number that would make you happy? And okay, now that you have these things down, then what, what are you selling in the sense that like he was doing ad hoc things all over the place? Can you productize your service? To the degree that basically you're systematizing it, right? So this is where you're going to get leverage in the business. So when you think about it, like, is there one of the things that like, when you look at businesses like this, that's super valuable, that it's becoming a thing now, but I would say like two, three years ago, a lot of people didn't really focus on is like, what are your standard operating procedures? Like these things sound boring and they're sometimes annoying, but the reality is it's like, if you want to step away from your business, this is also like one of these e-myth, you know, Michael Gerber's books. It's you take someone who's good at a skill set. And now they like go out and build their own business. But they're the doer. They're not the CEO. And so they're in the weeds here. But the idea of, the, of an SOP is literally that, that I can have you step in to my shoes to do the doer role. And, and not to belittle the doer role, but more the fact that like, I don't have to train every single person and dedicate my time, but I can actually make a you know, whether it's a procedure or a video or whatever it is. And, and there's different ways people learn better, obviously than others, but Hey, I don't need to spend all this time to train you, but now I can step out of that role and start to kind of think about my business and grow it and, and however I want that business to go. So the same thing, like when you're thinking about selling it for, for value, If someone's going to take it over and it's an agency. So one of the key, there's two key assets in that case, right? It's your customer list and your employees. And so we always talk about this in the consulting business. Um, In general, like I work at a consulting firm, the core asset goes up and down the elevator bank every night to go home, right? It's the employees. It's whether it's, they're the doers or the relationships or whatever it is. And if all the, all the people walked out the door the next day and didn't show up, like these assets are gone. And when you're buying a business and you're selling a business, like people are buying assets. They want to buy cash flow producing assets. That's really like at the core of valuation and, and investing and, and anything. And so if everyone walked out the door tomorrow, how could I replace it and like what would happen to my business? So as as the head of the business, a lot of times people get stuck as being the face of the organization and in a sale the question is is like can I go with the business? Like do I need to go with the business or do can I just, you know, disengage from the business and can it run without me? And will my parent my people want to go and if they don't go is the buyer screwed? So in thinking about like setting up your business it's like, okay, how replaceable is every person? Not because I think I'm going to fire them, not because I think they're going to walk out on me, but if something happens, can we just kind of backfill that job with with almost anyone who can understand what I've laid out? And that makes a business way more valuable to a buyer. Because they know that they can integrate that into their system, whether it's complementary to the business that they already have, or it's completely different than you know, or if it's being integrated in a, in a way that they already are trying to get into that space.
1: So, how do you even like go about finding somebody to buy a business?
0: So, um, there's actually now there's you know obviously. 10 20 years ago that we didn't have all these things that this is where like the investment banking industry was kind of like born for bigger companies but there were smaller investment banks that would basically kind of like find buy new buyers so to speak they they literally part of their job is almost like to cold call other businesses or other investors who would have an interest but now mm-hmm. you have all these websites that business brokers are, are promoting so there's both like you know, like if you have a website you want to sell, like there's things like Flippa um, and there's probably like a slew of them. I'm like forgetting off the top of my head, but basically like there's, there's online marketplaces that allow you to kind of run auctions or kind of just promote your site. Um, And at the same time you have um, other broker sites that literally like business brokers, that's all they do, right? They go out and they promote your business because they're going to take a cut of the sale. So they're out there shopping your business, both online and like, I'm totally blanking. I wish I had my, my things open on, on my computer, but there's a whole bunch of like sites that realistically, some are not great and and some are better. The, the, the challenge with the business broker is um, they're trying to control the process because they're in it for the commission like their, their whole job is, is commission driven, like they're not necessarily value add, but there's a lot of these sites out there, both with business brokers and without business brokers that can really help you find um, a buyer or if you want to be a seller.
1: Interesting. So what are some things that you see it in uh, the digital marketing? First of all, is, it, is a coaching business, is a co- coaching business able to be sold if the entrepreneur is the face of it?
0: So I think it depends on what is behind that face. Meaning, um, are all are all the sales coming strictly because of this individual, or are are people not really interacting with that person? Right. So take any any name of a person you think of. Um, I'm going to pick a little bit of an extreme person, and and like let's use like a Grant Cardone. Okay. So, Grant has all these different businesses. If he has a sales coaching business, it's under his Grant Cardone brand. He could sell the coaching if he is not doing the coaching, right? Because, like, everyone who comes through that program, it may be blessed by Grant. It may be, you know, kind of Grant's methodologies, but Grant is not teaching you. Mm-hmm. You could sell it. I mean, you look at Robert Kiyosaki, you look at the, the Rich Dad brand, right? Like, he could sell off silos of that they and they did they licensed like i don't know you know I'm trying to remember how many years ago like they used to run these um you know two-day seminars or these one-day seminars for real estate no money down real estate investing where it was it was branded as robert kiyosaki but robert was nowhere to be found right it was we go across the country and all these hotels and, and stuff like that yeah and, i
1: actually went to one of those when i was like 18 years old and uh I, I first one i went to and i expected him to be there and he wasn't right
0: and, and so like you, there probably was a little bit of disappointment and letdown. Yeah. Um, and so some people that I like, stayed for the pitch, <laughs> right. And then and some people buy the pitch too, right? Like you were there, they were selling a $5,000 package. It comes with a bunch of binders, maybe it was DVDs or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And, and, but people buy it and it Robert's not involved. So it's totally sellable. So like in those cases, they're leveraging their name and their brand even though they are the face um, they, they could sell that. Some of these guys just want the licensing and and they're fine with it. The, the challenge with anything that has you as the face or you as the brand is what happens to that if you make that sale, or if you do that, um, licensing from the perspective of like, do they treat the people you'd want them to be treated? Do they, you know, kind of have the same respect for either the customer or the integrity of the information or any of these things. So I think that, you know, when you kind of deal with that sector of, you know, space of of coaching is everything on the up and up of how you'd want it to be. That's the risk that you have reputationally um, when you you sell things like that. But there's definitely agencies get sold all the time, but even in in the coaching space, it's definitely doable as long as you have your process and procedures and coaches who would kind of be able to kind of transition that.
1: Yeah. So like for me, um, we have two sections of the business. Like the, I mean, we have two offers essentially. One is the VA plus coaching. One's just the VA. The people who get just the VA, um, I don't talk to them. I don't see them. Like we never interact. Um, so you're saying that, so that section would be able to be sold by itself in its, as its own like package thing. If somebody wanted to buy that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, think about all the, you know, um, I think you even had Nathan Hirsch on um, mm-hmm. in the past, right? So he actually, his episode
1: up. comes out uh, today, is in the day that we're recording this, July 1st.
0: Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so he, you know, he sold Free Up as a business that it was, you know, I wouldn't kind of say it's exactly like Upwork, but it, it was a similar kind of model. Mm-hmm. So that that piece of the business is definitely sellable because realistically, no people are coming to you potentially because they see your ads and whatever it is, and, and maybe even because they want to buy it from JR, but they know at the end of the day that you're not the VA, you are not there hand holding them and, and doing all these things. There's no touch point with you um, so it's easily you know a sellable asset. and it's it's also like that space is one like the gig space is one of these interesting models where do you, who who's the natural buyer, right? Is it someone who's just looking to add incremental revenue to, to existing or complementary business? Is it free up wanting to get more market share? Is it you know, an upwork who wants to get more market share? and and I think it also, so when I think about that, um, I think about, well, if I were, if I were in a niche, if I were in a space, whether it's uh, I'm a realtor or whether I'm actually an agency who, um, is providing leads for realtors and, and you know, kind of pick my niche I'm a Cairo, I am an agency for Kairos. Is that a really interesting play where most, the thing I learned when, uh, when Facebook ads like became a thing and I was like, Oh, I want to go learn it. Um, And I started meeting with chiro's and dentists and all these things. And as someone who who's been in business like my whole life, I should have realized this out of the gate. But like, it took a couple of meetings to realize this. And that is, these people are professional dentists, chiropractors, whatever they are. They went to school. That is what they do. They're not business people. Most of these people actually are very bad at running their businesses. Mm -hmm. And could there be a service? that if I said to JR, hey, you know what? You know how to get VAs. You know how to train them. Um, I either want more of them, or if I want to just buy that piece from you, I'm going to go and like dedicate myself to a niche. And I'm not going to try and get leads for these guys. I'm, I'm going to first try and help them book more appointments because they don't have the back office support or they don't have the administrative help. And I would kind of plug it in to like pitch it to the dentist as... So you don't hire a um, an office manager, or don't hire someone who's going to sit at the desk and do very low value work to you at fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars US dollars with benefits and whatever. Why don't we plug in a remote person at a fraction of that cost? And then if if you want to kind of like play the lead game and whatever, but there's probably ways like there's there's probably a lot of people who if they think about this and say, hey, Jr's got a way to get you know VAs or he's managing a lot of VAs this could be an interesting place for me to kind of plug into a niche and I could like, I can dominate a space.
1: Right. Exactly. And that's uh, I think that's where we're going to go next. <laughs> so interesting. So what, what all, like, what are all your, your ventures that you're currently involved in? I know like when we met, I don't even know if you do this anymore, but you had like an Amazon store that was doing pretty well. Yep. Um, I think you were helping other people with their Amazon stores. Yep. Uh, you're also working in finance um, yeah. <laughs> so what is your stack look like today? Yeah. So,
0: um, so those are all in the stack still. Um, so, so in, in the, the day job, you know, is really, it's, it's intellectually stimulating because I think I'm just generally like curious, right? So like I, I enjoy learning things about businesses. So one of the things with the clients is you get to see a ton of industries. Like they're investing in, in some of the craziest things that like you didn't even know was like a really a business before. Um, like an example is like the, this company, um, basically they, they take scrap, they, they take cars and they junk them. And the problem they were having was and they were repurposing the metal and, and they really were after the metal and reselling the metal. The problem was, is when you take the car, you have these tires and what they figured out to do was they went and bought a, basically a rubber creation company. Basically, like if you think about all the playgrounds that now they, instead of having like dirt or wood chips, they have like these rubberized mm-hmm. w- looking rudge, you know, wood chips. Yeah. Um, so they went out and bought one of those companies that is like the biggest manufacturer to the playground industry for these, these rubber pieces. And that is what they did. So instead of taking the cost of getting rid of these tires, they bought this company. And now they make money on the tires because they're out selling the rubber. Um, and so like things like that, like, I would never have like, if I didn't have a client that did this kind of thing, I would never like kind of see that that type. And, and it's a way really to take an expense and turn it into profit. So um, I, I, still enjoy the, the day job because of things of, of like that kind of examples. But, um, you know, the other things that, that I've been doing is like, I've always had the, I've had the Amazon business for a number of years. We actually have two different businesses on Amazon. One is we really, we just go to manufacturers and we resell their products. It's wholesale. It's a flow business is the way I look at it. It's just there. Can you sell that business? Probably. I mean, people buy them, but there's nothing. The barrier to entry is pretty low, right? Mm-hmm. Like my relationship with the manufacturer and why I have either an exclusive, a semi-exclusive agreement with them to sell their product on Amazon is probably the most valuable thing there. But outside of that, really, it's, it's not. How do you,
1: how do you get that agreement so that they, they're not like, Oh, well, why don't we just do that ourselves? So it's interesting. Like a a bunch of years ago,
0: no one wanted to do it themselves, right? They're like, we are a mass producer. We want to sell in volume. We want to take in $10,000 POS, $100,000 POS. We don't want to sell to you and to you and to you and to you, because from a cash flow perspective, like it's way when you're manufacturing it at scale, it's way easier to kind of take in like the big chunky order versus like okay sell, selling the one-offs. Smaller companies though have started to make that move in in a pretty aggressive way to sell themselves. Some of them either hire people like us to kind of like manage it for them. Some of them go and just hire an employee. Um, who either has experience or is going to learn the ropes on their own. Um, so like when we went to um, when we get into that business, really we would take, you know, a company that was manufacturing something that people would look for and, and, people, you know, so let's say they were selling it to retail stores or to, you know, mom and pop shops, you know, locally, we would kind of approach them as just like, Hey, we want to, we want to resell your product. And they'd be like, okay, now the game has really become like, okay, listen, everybody and and anybody has approached us already. So why should I, you know, the pot in in their minds, if we're doing a million dollars of our product on Amazon in sales a year, and there's 10 sellers selling this product, in essence every person has 10% of the pot because each one is kind of buying for us and they and they're reselling it and if we approach them in their minds they're like okay the pot is a million i have a relationship with 10 people and now you're just going to dilute that because you're going to be the 11th seller splitting the million dollar pot and and so like it doesn't really help the company because the company's not mm-hmm. selling anymore Um, so if, if the number is one or two, you maybe have the case to say, listen, it's diversification in case something happens to one of these guys, we're willing to place bigger orders. But the real value play is when you approach them and you're like, listen, we looked at your listing and we think we can make that pot go from a million to a million two or a million five, because we see that the listing doesn't have good keywords. It's not optimized. Well, it's poor pictures. It's whatever it is. And we will run ads at this product. And we looked and we saw there are no ads currently being run. We will drive additional traffic, right? So that's the value to them. And we're like, hey, in in trade, we don't want 10 people. We only want five people selling or whatever, you know, whatever it is. So that's one of the businesses we have. The other one we have is is a brand that we sell our own product. Um, And I was very hesitant for many, many years. I didn't want to like manufacture stuff in China. I was very opposed to that. And, um, ultimately we ended up really just building relationships with some of these exclusive, um, manufacturers that were stateside in the U S and we just went to them and we said, listen, we really like your product. We're, we're going to continue to sell it. Would you manufacture that product for us with our packaging and our branding on it? And some, some of them obviously told us take a hike. No, like why would you do that? And others are pretty open to that. So like I call that white labeling. Because like, basically, it's not private label, it's, it's white labeling on our products. I mean, you see that, like, think about, um, you know, going to Costco or BJ's or even any of the groceries, you know, chains of uh, Stop and Shop or ShopRite or whatever, Publix, they have their own brand stuff. You know, these grocery stores are not manufacturing this stuff. They just go to like Heinz and they're like, hey, can you take your ketchup and just put our label on or they go to Hunt's or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's a white label product. So, um, those are the two Amazon and what ultimately happened was, is because we understood how to deal with manufacturers and we we know the algorithm, we know the ads, people do come to us and ask us if they, if we, if, you know, if they can hire us to run their Amazon ads or do things like that. So we don't like heavily advertise it, but we get a lot of like inbounds from referrals and we're pretty like, I I wouldn't say like selective in the sense that like, I don't want to work with people who have like unrealistic expectations because like my team is like, I I haven't looked to build that out. Like at mass scale, like we have like four team members um, and we have capacity, but you know, if, if a better client comes along and there's an annoying one, we're happy to kind of like trade up, so to speak. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, so those are those. And then, you know, I think the other thing in the online space is something like I just personally like means a lot to me is, I see people who come into a lot of money really quickly and and like personally like that's exciting for them, but it, it like I'm happy for them, but I feel like there's so much unknowns about like okay, I came from nothing or I never really was taught anything about money, and now I just go do a whole lot of stupid things with my money um so by default, it's kind of like just been a a space that I've started to kind of come into where, you know, I've been helping a lot of people like understand their investment strategy, whether it's for stocks, because that's just something I've been doing for 20 plus years, like in in my career, or investing in private businesses or in real estate, um, just because I have a lot of friends in in these different things. And I can connect them um, in the sense of like, hey, listen, look at this real estate investment, or people came to me, come to me, and they're like, I'm looking at this does this make sense? Or this is how I'm thinking about it. And I can tell them the pitfalls or the pros and the cons. I think a lot of people like they like to play at the high level. They don't want to get into the details because it's like, oh, it's annoying. That's not what I am. I'm an entrepreneur. I don't like the details or whatever it is. And um, like, I kind of break it down to the numbers and and the details. And, And then the last thing that like really has come about also because of demand, people just coming to me is, hey, I want to structure a deal to buy this business or I want to have a rev share agreement with someone. I want to bring on an employee and I want to have a contract that actually gives them a piece or things like that. And again, because of like my day in, day out jobs, like I deal with all this stuff all the time. Um, I, like I, I do advisory roles for that. And that, that's kind of like where um, the, the brand results advisory um, came about. So those are, that's kind of like the stack.
1: So I, I've come, I've been one of the people that come to you quite a bit for investment advice and uh what do you like what are the, some of the biggest mistakes you see when somebody has an internet business they came into a lot of money pretty quickly um maybe 50,000 a month 100,000 a month uh when they're used to making like you know 50,000 a year or whatever yeah uh, what are some of the big mistakes that you see in how they manage their money moving forward
0: yeah. So like, I think there's a, there's a few different things. And, um, the, the first is going back to that original thing, right? Like, is your business set up as a business, right? So now that you're making this money, um, and by that
1: you mean like, do they have an LLC and
0: yeah. So like, do you have an LLC in a separate bank account? Just like a starting point. Now I'm not a tax advisor. I'm not a CPA. I tell everybody. So like anything I say is like, you know, my personal views and whatever. And so go hire a CPA and whatever. Um, cause there's certain thresholds when you're making a certain amount of money that like, do you file as a sole proprietor or do you start to file as an S corp? Right. And, and so there's tax savings and, and to be an S corp, you have to start to pay yourself a a reasonable salary as the owner CEO or whatever, because after that, you can start to take money out of the business if you want in the form of a distribution versus, you know, taxable income at this, it's a different tax kind of rate. Um, But the, the big thing is, is like, okay, you're making this money. Are you keeping the money in the business Or are you taking the money and putting it into your personal bank account? Whichever method from a tax perspective, like let's leave taxes aside. Is it out of the business or is it in the business? Because these are two different things. So if you're leaving it in the business and you're going to invest both in your business or in yourself, your skills, right? Like the most important thing is like to continue to build skills and invest in yourself. But realistically, you're not going to take that out of the business to do. You're going to keep it in there. And now it's an expense on the business, right? You know, mm-hmm. I know we've talked about, um, what, what's his name? Uh, was it was Tom Wheelwright's, you know, uh, tax, tax textbook. free wealth. Yeah. So like there's just fundamental things that like they talk about in general, right? Like if you, if you have a business expense, it kind of reduces the tax level of, of certain things. So if you're going to invest in yourself and build your skill a hundred percent, you can, most of these things, again, I'm not a tax advisor. I'm not giving you legal advice, but you can kind of expense it in your business and keep it in there. So the mistake though, that I start to see is, okay, so two, two big things is first, does your business actually have like a reserve? So, like, if, if you think about, like, Dave Ramsey, you know, they tell people, like, oh, have an emergency fund for your living. Um, but, like, let's bring that up to the business level. The business, as a lot of people saw, like, granted, the online market or digital market is a little bit different. But, like, think about, like, what happened from March through June from coronavirus. Right? You're a restaurant. I think they showed that most restaurants had like, two, three weeks worth of cash on
1: hand. Yeah. Uh, I saw that, like, Dave & Buster's had $100 million cash, and that was only enough to get them through, like, four months or something like that.
0: Yeah, which sounds like it was probably less than four months. But yeah, like, um, and AMC theaters, like they're actually at the uh, at a close tipping point as well. Um, all these businesses, and like they're a huge company. So when you look at, you know, you don't have to even be um, a pizzeria that that suffered, right? Like, think about the nail salons, the hair salons, the photographers, the catering businesses. These businesses do not sit on enough cash. Now, sitting on cash idly by earning no return on it may sound like a stupid investment, but it also lets you sleep a little bit better at night knowing that if something like if your business is shut down, right? Like I always think about like the Google slap of whatever the early 2000s or whatever it is where people's businesses disappeared overnight, some people who had cash in their business or whatever, they, they were okay. Other people were like scrambling yeah. like for the next. Yeah. Year.
1: For me personally, I'm like, it does feel good to know. Like I could tell everybody to fuck off at any point and, and just go do whatever I want. Or I can just take some, take my time figuring out what the next thing is or whatever.
0: Right. So it's like, there's, there's a comfort level, but after the business has that personally, you should have the same thing too, right? Like you want to know like, okay, if, if, everything went down with the business and I actually pulled the plug on it. I didn't want to do this anymore. So it wasn't about not having cash, but like I shut it down or I sold it and while I sold it, you probably have a lot more money, but like, it's not there. I want to know that I can live as a person and not worry about my rent, my car, whatever it is. So the stupid thing then that I see is just like where people spend the money. So like, I get it. People like nice things and I'm not like, Oh, you know, you can't have nice things, but when you make your first, you know, hundred thousand dollars or two hundred thousand dollars, and the first thing, you know, I'll, I'll I'll pick the quintessential examples. Like you go and you buy like a Lamborghini. It's just it's a de- happens to be it holds decent value, but for the most part, cars are depreciating assets. So like unless you're buying something that's going to actually hold value, you're buying a liability. You're not actually buying an asset or something, you know, of value. Like there are timepieces, you know, watches that hold tremendous value. You can resell them, but then there's just like a lot of stupidity that people spend their money on and they wake up and they're like, oh crap. Like I had this hundred thousand dollar a month and now I have no money in the bank. So it, to me, it's just like, I, I feel for them because I'm just like, they probably just didn't even think about it. it it wasn't like oh they were just intentionally wasting the money they just kind of mm-hmm. didn't think about the future and especially like when someone's in their 20s and like they don't have necessarily the thought of like okay where am i going to be in 5 10 years from now where am i going to be in 15 years from now what am i going to want where if they had just taken that money whether you know whether it's stocks whether it's real estate whether it's some sort of vehicle that can generate a return from a asset growth and, and income generation, where they'd be in the future, like that money, once you kind of take it out of your business and it's in your bank and it's done and it's taxed and it's whatever, that money should be earning money for you. And, and that is how you're gonna kind of kind of grow your wealth, really.
1: So what do you what do you think in terms of like at what point should you start as an entrepreneur I'm um, shifting from investing in yourself and your skill set into the stock market, real estate, etc.
0: So, I, I think one should never stop investing in themselves. So, like, no matter, like, I invest in myself today, like, I still spend on, on different trainings, learning new skills. Um, and there, there's ways to invest, even if you don't want that skill, right? In the sense of, like, people, everyone, in, especially in the online space, has some sort of mentor or someone that they want to, you know, learn different things from. And a lot of times, people spend the money to, to network. Like to expand their network to get to know people who are playing at a, at a level above them or whatever it is, and that's another way to invest in themselves. So, I, I don't think it should ever be an and an, you know, an, if one or the other, it, it's kind of like a both. But I think one of the models that, um, you know, I learned really like when I was really young was, um, it's, it's twofold and it kind of comes from the same thing. So, I don't know if you ever read, there's a book out there, Profit First, um, and the book's fine. Like I'm not like promoting the book and saying, Hey, it's good as a quick read. There's a lot of systems that he talks about in terms of like how to, how to think about getting your money for yourself first before you pay your bills. Cause everyone first pays the expenses and what's left is profit. Mm-hmm. The mindset is like, that's backwards. Pay yourself first. Is, is like the, you know, I'm, I'm giving you like the 30 second view on the book. And he kind of tells you like set up bank accounts, like put the tax money that you owe in this bank account and put the operating expenses in this account. And blah, 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 but always put your profit first ahead of all these expenses. I buy into that. Um, I think Michael is, a, is, is correct in a lot of, he's got like a bunch of books like Clockwork uh, is like an operational book. Um, but the big thing is I, I don't credit him with this concept in the sense that in the 1920s, there was a book written called The Richest Man in Babylon. The Richest Man Man in
1: Babylon, yeah, I've read that one.
0: Okay, so that book really at its core is the same concept in the sense that it basically says, take 10% of your money before you do anything with your money and put it off to the side and invest it. Now, Mm -hmm. it doesn't lay it out in that exact way, but that's what it says. And it talks about like the laws of gold. And it's so true. And that was something like that was ingrained um, when I I read that. It it, it made total sense to me. And so I would say like even early on, because let's say you have $10,000 at the end of the month. If that is your profit, whether you do profit first or not, whatever it is, right? So you've paid your operating expenses for your business and you're sitting on $10,000. If you now needed, you know, the money, or even if you before you paid all your operating expenses, you had $10,000, whatever it is. If you took 10% off the top, you will find a way to make it work with $9,000. And if you take that $10,000 and every month you take that, that $1,000 and you take that $1,000 and thousand, so your 10% is constantly going, it will grow and you can begin to invest day one. Now, granted, you can't go buy an apartment building with $1,000 a month and you can't you know, necessarily even potentially buy a house. But if you start putting that in something that's going to earn you some sort of return, until that accumulates to be able to, whether you want to buy a house, whether you want to get into a syndication deal and, and buy it into a larger apartment building or anything, even if you want to every month, put it into the S&P 500 index, you know, all these things are debatable and, and we can kind of like probably spend hours talking about each one in, in particular. But if you're taking 10% every month and putting it aside, that's going to grow and compound. Like that's the big thing in terms of um, compounding growth that people, I think, conceptually just don't understand. Um, I think, I don't know if we've talked about like the rule of 72 is like just Mm -hmm. a simple compounding thing, right? So if one number times the other number equals 72, that's when it doubles. So for an example, if I take a 8% coupon investment, I'm getting an 8% return every year in nine years, that money will double. That may not sound sexy. That may not sound like, holy cow, I invested in the next Facebook IPO, but my money is going to double in nine years if you, if you start doing that at 25, before you're 35, if whatever you put away at that point in time is going to double, that's pretty interesting if you can continuously do that. And so the power of compounding becomes extremely real and extremely exciting because you're not doing anything to do that, right? Like you're still doing your business. You're still focusing on you. You're investing in yourself separately, that's, that's going. So like, and, and I, I kind of believe that like it all comes from like the concept also, like, you know, even in the Bible where they talk about tithing, it's 10%. This is the same with like, almost like think of it as like a, a tithe to yourself, you know, like you invest in, into your, whatever you're going to do, whether real estate, stocks, who, you know, those things, and they grow 10% off the top. You can start that day one.
1: So do you advise having, cause I, okay, I have two bank accounts, mm-hmm. personal business um and that's it because i like to keep i like simplicity mm-hmm. and i when i when i i used to have a third one that was like a high not high but like a interest yeah, like, savings yeah, like account. the allies of the world the yeah. of the world yeah. yeah and uh interest rates tanked and all that stuff and i value simplicity so i was like mm-hmm. whatever i have it here it is what it is um now i have a uh accountant that's like on like it's she's on staff it's not like an accounting firm Um, and it's someone who's like a freelance accountant and now we get like regular like cash flow statements and stuff once a week so Mm -hmm. the problem with having multiple bank accounts for me was that it took away the simplicity of knowing looking in one place and being like this is how much we have Um, but now that i have an accountant that gives me a cash flow statement once a week and reconciles how much do we have in stripe that's currently being moved around How much do we have in personal? How much do we have in, uh, in, uh, the business? And then if I have any other accounts and I can see in one place, um, now I I think it makes a little bit more sense. So how many accounts do you recommend somebody have and how should they classify each one of those?
0: So I think the first thing, like your point about, um, simplicity is huge. So I will say, you know, for years, I probably like when I was first starting out, I would chase yield, like right? Like I would chase those 25 mm-hmm. basis points or whatever it is. And so if an account um, offered me a little bit more, I'd, I'd open another one and whatever. And the same with back in the day, there was a, um, there was a whole thing about how you open credit cards for rewards. And pre 2008, they actually used to pay you bonuses when you took out open credit cards. And there used to be a thing um, like there's a site, uh, the points guy and it's a blog. And he, he's okay. like, he kind of breaks down. Like, do you want travel? Do you want rewards? Do you want credit card, um, you know, cash back? Do you like, what do you want? And he, and like, he blogs about it. And I actually think he makes, I think he got a large investment like a bunch of years ago, but back then there was something called like, what we called it was an apporama and you basically opened in a blitz period. So when you open a credit card, they pull your credit report every time someone pulls your credit, it dings it just a couple of points. But if everyone dings it at the same time in a 24 to 48 hour window, it doesn't impact your credit. It, it's all like, it looks like one,
1: mm-hmm. but it like,
0: it's in a wave. So pre-2008, you used to basically like map out okay, I'm going to open this card because they're going to give me a $500 bonus. I'm going to open this because they're going to give me like on the first 30,000 I spend, they're going to give me an extra this. Like there were all these different things and there were sites who literally like listed it out. And um, I used to spend like, you know, at night, I would like research it. I spent all this time. (laughs) And like, in hindsight, it's like completely non-simplistic. It's a pain in the butt. And like, was it really worth the time I spent for the money I was getting? I don't know, maybe, maybe not. But- um i had all these accounts and i had all these things now um i tell people like you have to do what kind of fits for you but that money though once it comes out of the business if it's in your personal account there's definitely value in having other accounts where the money is just like hey this is my cash uh, component. So again, not to tangentially get off into um, life insurance, because this is like an area that like a lot of people promote and like, there's a lot of things, but whole life insurance um, has a, a cash value component that earns um, a return. And so there's a an entire school of thought out there that you basically you put all your money into this thing that they'll call like a, a vault or they'll call a bank. Um, there was a guy, Nelson Nash, who created like, Be Your Own Banker. He basically said like, he didn't believe in like banks and said, why well, put it in banks, put it in an insurance company, you can you can use the cash. And it's, and it's not so simple. Like I don't want to simplify it here. But the point is, is that you can use that function of getting a return on your money while it's sitting and just waiting. So if you had the Amex bank account, right? So if you have your personal account and you had your business account, once it's in that personal account, like for example, if you're going to have an emergency fund that's going to cover six to nine months of your expenses that you know you're not going to touch, you could put that in a capital one, 360, ally, Amex, whatever it is, and get the 1%, one and a quarter, wherever rates are, because they're so ridiculously low, because you're not intending to do anything with that money anyway, right? Like That's your, Hey, just in case everything goes to hell, I can kind of like pay my rent. That makes sense to me to have a separate account. Having now like six of those, right? Cause each one of these accounts is FDIC insured to a cap, right? So, some people who have millions, they're like, "Well, I'm going to put 250,000 here, 250 here, 250 here." You can do that, but it definitely, to your point, it complicates just like your general day-in and day-out life. And if you have too many millions, like it won't matter how many bank accounts you have, you're going to have someone's going to be over the the, the dollars FDIC insurer anyway. Um, but like at that point, you're going to go with a big institution like a uh, you know JPMorgan Chase or something of that nature that won't necessarily fail. And so the, the insurance, the FDIC insurance doesn't really matter. So like, I happen to have a bunch of accounts. I also have accounts for my kids, but there's definitely a time component to it. And, and I think it also, I think it also depends on, um, you know, what your accountant is going to do, like your bookkeeper, whoever's on staff, like if she's like, dude, you're killing me, you know, these extra five accounts are too much. Okay. You can, can kind of scale it back, but I, I don't think like. I, I don't just have two. I have I have more, more than two. Um, but I I also can open multiple accounts in the same bank if I feel comfortable. If I'm if I'm not trying to um, if I'm not trying to worry about the FDIC insured two hundred and fifty kind of number, then you know like Ally will or Capital One or any of these places will let you have multiple accounts if you want one to be your savings for your emergency fund and one for your personal or whatever it is. Um, that you can kind of, you know, I, I, Wells is, happens to be the, the bank that I use for a bunch of things, but it, it was just more of convenience at that point in time.
1: So I have, uh, a time for one more question. So I want to pick it wisely. Um, so in doing all this research about like taxes and paying less taxes and all these different things, um, reading tax-free wealth and, and, uh, just asking questions, one of the, I guess my conclusion, and this might be you know wrong or misled or whatever, um, but my conclusion seems to be that the best tax strategy is don't worry about taxes and make more money and just pay your taxes because, like I read Tax Free Wealth, and he's like. You know, in chapter one, he's like, "Oh well, you got to go on go on vacation and look for a rental property while you're on vacation, and then you can write off that vacation and uh, basically spending all the all this time and and trying to find a way to make your commute from your." Here's a perfect example. Perfect, perfect example. One of the biggest write offs that I hear people tout as like the uh, the phenomenal write off that's going to save you so much money is the home office deduction. So. Yeah. Let's say you pay. Um, so I was looking at a place recently, and the place was like $4,000 a month. And the I, it's like thirteen, thirteen, sixteen hundred 1,600 square feet, I think. Um, I measured one of the rooms that would be the office, and it was like 14 by 15 or 15 by 16 or whatever. So here, I'll, I'll do the, the quick math on my phone so that I make sure I get this right. I when I when I did the math, it was fifteen percent of the total space of the unit, right? So four thousand a month times 0.15 that's six hundred dollars a month that I get to write off, right? So multiply that by seventy two hundred dollars. Uh, at let's say you're paying a thirty percent tax rate, so you essentially save two thousand one hundred and sixty dollars um, for the the one deduction that everybody's like, hey, you got to have that home office. Um, which I'm not saying like you shouldn't have an o- home office. It's a very easy one to to get. But I found that most of the deductions in the book were things like that. That was like, you got to do all this work and all this stuff for a couple hundred dollars, a couple thousand dollars here and there. To when the point, like when you, if you get to the point where you're making over a million dollars a year or half a million dollars a year, um, to do all that work to save a couple thousand dollars or an extra 20 or 30 grand or whatever at the end of the year, seems like that my time would be better spent just paying those taxes and worrying about making more money. What do you think?
0: It's a very um, definitely controversial topic in the sense of taxes, how much to pay, not to pay, right? So like in a perfect world, I'd say you always want to pay as little as possible. To your point though, about like what the deductions look like and and how much, you know, hoops you're jumping through to kind of get there. I, th- I think there's a balance. So I worked at a venture firm, uh, for a bunch of years, so we we would do early stage venture capital investing, and this family office that backed a lot of our deals, um, we they had been in some of these deals for forever, and the stocks would go up, and and I'd be like, let's exit, like let's sell, like why are we sitting on this? Like we made the investment, like as a venture firm, you're not investing so that you know, like I'm buying Coca Cola for forever. I'm investing in something because I believe in the concept. I'm taking it public. I've made 10X my money. I'm going to take some money off the table. If I want to own some for the long-term, fine. But like my idea is not to keep, not ride the train continuously. Like I need to take money off the table for returns and all these things. These guys had this mass adverse reaction to the idea of paying taxes. They were like, you know, and and like when I I was young and I'm like, this is such a rich person problem. Like in my head, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, you don't want to pay your long-term capital gains because at that point, like as long as you hold it over a year, that's what it was. And like, we literally had like four companies go public. And I'm like, are you, have you lost your mind? Like you're going to let hundreds of millions ride just because you don't want to pay taxes on that. Like that doesn't make a lot of sense. Like I get tax deferral. I get a lot of these things. And like, I've read that book. And I think it it all kind of needs like some sort of striking balance, right? Like when you invest in real estate, it comes with a lot of natural tax deductions where you have things like depreciation, which which is like this phantom thing, right? Like it's this made up accounting thing that really doesn't cost anything, right? The building becomes worth less while the building is actually becoming more, Mm -hmm. but you get this it deduction that you can take against the income, it it's pretty like ridiculous, but it's cool and it and it works, and so to use it like totally use the the incentive. When it comes to like how many, you know, to the point of like I, I know exactly the example you're using in the book that he's like, okay, you know, so go here and try and find the property, and then every business, you know, trip that you take is a deduction. There, there's there's ways to do it. And then there's ways like to start to drive yourself crazy. I, I, in many ways agree, like, Hey, if I just make more, I don't sweat this stuff. But if I'm making more, paying more in taxes does like feel bad. Like it starts to annoy you. And you're like, well, wait a second. Like, I don't need to give away this money. Let me do things. So like, I know most people who are in real estate in particular, um, they use, or it doesn't even have to be real estate. Like I have, um, you know, because I'm I'm an employee in in this consulting firm, like so I have a W-2 income, but I have multiple businesses with multiple LLCs. I'm going to take the max deductions, not necessarily the, the home office. Is actually, like a pretty interesting one because it does. If you're a solo, like if you're uh, if you're um, not an S corp or whatever it is, when you start, and again, I'm not a tax advisor, but like when you start to take that deduction of the home office. When it flows through to your personal side, um, there's an impact to your like your property tax and, and different things. And depending on your state, like I, in, in New Jersey where I am, like I'm capped anyway. Like I have such high property taxes that like the new tax laws, I can't even deduct. At the, at the level that like I should get. Like our property taxes are like north of $20,000 for the house a year. And you know, like in Florida, it would probably be like 4,000 or something like that. But the, the the federal law now is like, you can't deduct more than 10,000 on it. So um, the, the the home office is like one of these weird ones. I just know that like it can potentially come, like I've talked to my accountant about it and I'm not, again, not giving any advice. But a lot of people do things like, and he addresses this in the book of basically like saying, okay, I'm going to make my spouse, my, my girlfriend, my boyfriend, whatever it is.
1: I read that and I was like, I'm not doing all
0: this. <laughs> <laughs> there's no way. So if people do it. Like I know people who do it and like, I do understand, but there's definitely a fine line of like, when you're going to drive yourself crazy. And then like, Hey, I'm, I'm cool with doing these things because like I'm reduced, I'm staying inside the tax code. I'm playing to how they wrote the code and and I want to get these benefits. There are people who like, they'll do everything and anything just to avoid the taxes. And their, their belief is just like, Hey, I've made this money. I don't need to give more away than, than is legally necessary. I think, um, I think there's probably some sort of fine line balance that like I try personally, my, my personal opinion wrong or right is that like, I want to pay less taxes. I definitely use certain vehicles. Um, You know, that life insurance example that I was talking about, there is a tax benefit to that. Like you, the growth is not taxed um, or at least is tax deferred until you actually pull out the money. But if you wait till you die, your inheritors don't pay that tax. Um, You know, so uh, as long as you're under the inheritance tax levels. But so I definitely want to play to the key laws, but every little thing you know, hire your kids, like all those things, there's a balance there. Like, and I think it also depends on how much you're really making, how much you want to make and how Mm -hmm. much you want to like focus on this. That, that, that's my personal view. I think some of it is like exhausting in, in the, the time energy, but if you have the right team who will do all that focusing for you and just tell you, Hey, use this credit card when you go here or, you know, put this person on payroll or do that. And you don't have to think about it it becomes a lot easier to kind of like get those tax benefits without driving yourself nuts to, to right. do that. But if you were going to rent something for $2,000 and instead you went for the $4,000, but you're only going to get to du- deduct $600 or whatever, net-net, you're paying more for the place. Mm-hmm. Now you have to decide, like, do you really want this place more than the $2,000? Right.
1: Exactly. All right, dude. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Let everybody know where they could find you. And uh, we def- I have like a million other... I, I want to go on. I want to do an episode on like each one of these tangents. <laughs> okay. um, so let everybody know where they can find you.
0: Yeah, sure. So uh, you can find me on Instagram at uh, RE the businessman. You can find me on Facebook, just my name. Um, results advisory is the, so I think the, the website is results, uh, results advisory LLC. Uh, and then I have a podcast inside the lines. Then um, you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever, or the website is inside the lines, then Awesome.
1: Cool, man. So thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. It was great talking to you. Hey, if you enjoyed this podcast, then I'd be forever grateful if you left us a five-star review on the app you're listening on so we can help more people. And if you want more content like this, then click that subscribe button now. And until next time, my friends, stay leveraged.